Hello, good evening. Today's podcast uh, should be concentrating on a topic that is, um, shall we say, controversial, but more in a Western society setting. It's with regard to the um, star architects. that uh, is being lauded and commended and followed avidly by um, architects and architectural students, almost like a religious cult. Um, I would go into that further before I give an introduction, the most of what I'm gonna say is based on a lecture that I presented to students of architecture at the degree level. It's like a um, conclusion of sorts to what I have been conveying to the students regarding architectural theory and it gave me a chance to actually read up on the, the, the subject matter of many architects, modernists, postmodernists, a range of theorists. I'm not saying I have researched deeply in this subject. I'm recollecting based on my experience teaching quite a number of years and and I, I feel that I should podcast this this topic um, because it's sort of I didn't know that there are architects out there that feels the same way as I do regarding star architects when we when the students were doing the first project um, namely because the subject was a hypothetical site, students um, uh, relied on, on uh, form-making or preconceived ideas uh, regarding forms. Many of them use curvilinear forms. We had another lecture on expressionism earlier in and the new expressionisms include the work of Zaha Hadid architects, which now is headed by Patrick Schumacher and Frank Gehry. And these are uh, star architects who, who is not apologizing for what they do. They have their own ideas about um, what they think society is about and, and, and what they serve and their role and, and how they they would serve the client and not really question about politics, like um, the quote by Patrick Schumacher. And um, there were people who were against them in the sense that um, what they're doing is what their design is, is, is could be even depressing, you know? Um, so that was the, that was the um, the argument, uh, the end, which I will go back until the end, but 
let me mention that um, in this day and age, we're concerned about sustainability. And it's not like sustainability in design or green architecture started only recently. Uh, designing with sense and sensibilities um, that we learn if we regard nature as something that is not to dominate or not to um, is something important to be considered as context or as part of the design that since uh, time immemorial uh, we had been doing green architecture and um, there is a consultation with um, geographer, a geographer that I know who talked about the historical perspectives of, of green architecture in, in, in conservation, natural conservation. Um, there's a book by, by Robert Arville, uh, Bob Boot, uh, called Man and Environment in 1967, who is a writer in nature conservation and has been the director of Nature Conservancy in the UK in the 1970s. He, a quote from the book says, from primitive times, man has been making an assault on his environment with fire, water, and tools. Until a century or so ago, and I assume here referring to 1860s or even earlier, this attack took place over limited areas and in most cases at a relatively slow pace. It's only since the Industrial Revolution that um, the assault on the environment by men um, has, has been rapid, uh, rapidly done. And to this day, we can see the effects of climate change and global warming and other issues regarding to sustainability that make it um, imperative that we deal with it. Um, and in this particular lecture, I was talking about the Green Building Index that about 14 countries have been doing so that architects um, adhere to some green technology when they, technologies when when they uh, or incorporate that in their design uh, when they uh, do the design. So starting with LEED uh, in America. So, but that time in the 1960s, another um, person named Rachel Carson wrote a book called The Silent Spring in 1962, urging humans to stop polluting the environment. She um, was a marine biologist and conservationist, and, and she was very vocal against the use of pesticides and so on. There was this time, and also the um, coupled with um, other factors of uh, the oil crisis as well, that happened in the 1970s. 
industrial revolution had happened at that time. And then you have the different industrial revolutions happening uh, throughout, first from the UK at a time in, in 1.0, then spread out to Europe and America when there is more mass production, assembly line and electrical energy use. And thereafter, industrial revolution in a way of 3.0 with automation, computers and electronics spread to Japan. And obviously uh, after World War II, yeah, and right until uh, recently when um, before or uh, the turn of the century, the 21st century, we see industry 4.0 happening with, until now, cyber physical systems, uh, internet of things and networks. And in industry 4.0, we recalled about oh, so many other uh, um, uh, subjects incorporated under industry 4.0 is robotics, simulation, um, uh, cybersecurity, additive manufacturing, augmented reality, big data and analytics. That's what we're doing, dealing with it now. And, and, and we kept on thinking about how the architect is coping with all this. And it seems that um, the problem has always been when you talk about sustainability is um, about manufacturing products at first. Uh, where there's most factories and big business businesses failing to invest in clean technology, environmental pollution, and on top of that, natural resource extraction, um, using um, raw materials for manufacturing sectors destroys wildlife and habitats. So the uh, result of overconsumption of manufactured products blamed as the root of environmental problems. And overconsumption is often thought as a direct result of overpopulation with too many humans, too many houses, too many cars, and too many cities. However, um, which is assuming that the world is equal, the truth is there are rich and poor countries. So uh, even though the European, British, American, Japanese cities were getting large and tall, most of the world still lived in for near forests, and some human populations never left the forests. That's why you see the high uh, varieties of human dwellings all over the world. And when we get to uh, examples that we have near or in our country, Malaysia, there are a lot of green um, ideas on green technologies being um, a lot. When I say a lot, is some propagated by the government itself with the Energy Commission diamond building. Um, only quite a few uh, buildings actually have the platinum um, platinum grade or evaluation uh, for green building index in Malaysia because it's not made mandatory in the country. So it's up to you whether you want to get into um, green architecture. Um, but when we talk about uh, environmental, dis environmental destruction protection, which is largely a Western US-centric issue. Um, uh, when we talk about the scientific revolution leading to economic and te technological boom with adverse environmental effects, 
was suggesting that there seems to be a progression of architecture from classical architecture to present day architecture, suggesting certain styles are better than others, certain materials are worse, certain designs are really worth the money. But the truth is architects are not made by architecture or by architects. As human beings, all architects are influenced by their environment, learning, experiences. So the truth is architecture as practiced throughout the world and throughout human history is messy and diverse. It's not a really clean thing, right? Yeah. Mess, messy vitality, says um, Robert Venturi. So it's easy to understand how some architects are influenced by environment, environmental thinking or by profits. But within the green movement, there are variations in how the followers are realizing um, their green philosophy. There are those who use technologies to solve environmental problems, and there are those who reject modern living altogether, preferring to live simply in the forest. So there is no such thing as the green architecture. Yeah, talking about this, and also earlier, I was referring to some uh, ideas by Christopher Alexander in the notes on the synthesis of form in 1970. And then Christopher Alexander influenced other people such as Nikos Salingaros. So before I talk about what Nikos Salingaros and other architects are talking about recently, uh, in, the ten, in the last 10 years, um, we refer to a pattern language, town, buildings, construction, in 1977. He, he authored it with Ishikawa, Silverstein, Jacobson, uh, Fishdal King, and Angel. And it is one of the finest work, finest work on how architecture can pro provide comfortable environment, especially in the city. So at that time in 1977, the authors responded to the 20th century environmental crisis of overpopulation, overconsumption, which focused mainly on the conditions in the Western world. So their solutions include creating and maintaining more green spaces, whether inside your housing perimeter gardens or outside in parks and lanes. At a time, you don't have green technologies here in the 70s, but they also talk about how to let sunlight into the homes. They were talking about things that we we haven't talked about in green, so-called green architecture now. So they even uh, mentioned about uh, roof garden in one chapter, which calls to mind early human dwellings in cold climates. So these architectural solutions showed how these authors at that time we're trying to dissolve the negative effects of overconsumption without thoughtful planning and green architecture, so to speak. So green architecture in um, three ways is one that is um, similar to what I said regarding the um, diamond building in Putrajaya, Malaysia by the Energy Commission diamond, uh, by the Energy Commission talking about in an innovative atrium, space, rooftop garden, uh, slope, sloping roof for PV installation purposes, light shelf, low e-glass, slanting facade, um, and trees uh, lining the streetscape for shading and cooling. So 
even before that, I was talking about um, the green design um, is the building for energy efficiency, the use of renewable energy sources such as wind, solar, autumn solar, creating a healthy indoor environment. So this is the green technologies group of philosophy. And the second one is actually the low, the one using low technology, the green architecture that uses low technology, the construction technology of the so-called primitive people. We refer this to uh, the original people or people who live mostly uh, dependent on the forest um, and nature. And the third is, um, it could also mean biophilic design where you, in, you create buildings that incorporate living organisms, vegetation growing on the walls, roofs, and holes for birds to make nests. So what is this is that uh, referring to Professor Nirmal Kishnani um, on his book, the first one, Greening, Architect Greening Asia, um, prior to another book on ecopuncture, which is published recently, recently in 2019, he talks about how there is um, a development on thinking about green. He, he, he categorized this architecture from the conventional with a negative impact to the green, less negative impact, to the super green, a minimal impact, and then to the nature-centric solutions and projecting to the socio-ecological paradigm. So, um, he talked about this in the Building Resilient Communities or the New Grounds for Resilience 2020 um, uh, forum that we had recently in November 6 to 8, uh, organized by uh, National Chengkong University and Taiwan government. Um, we were in this panel and uh, Professor Kish uh, Kishnani um, reminded us about how the super green design has a measured performance striving for zero impact and foster wellness. And he, he gave a lot of examples um, uh, by, and many of the examples was this architecture company called WOHA, WOHA, based in Singapore, and there was even a, some a photograph of a building seems to be covered in green, and he mentioned about on the facade itself, there are about 20 plus species, and on the sky terraces on this particular building, there are about 30 plus species. So um, this is the, is this the biophilic design that is being uh, mentioned. Um, the usual things uh, these architects uh, also employ um, with uh, vegetative filtration, rain garden, rainwater harvesting, green roof, and, and uh, cl uh, cleansing biotope eco pond. So we still have basically a concrete building or um, which has all these features and trying to have less impact on the environment as much as possible. But uh, there are debates about whether this is really green architecture at the end of the day. Of course, um, Professor Kishnani mentioned about the 
Kampong Admiralty building, um, which is a complex for to deal with the aging population, with housing and, and communal areas and so on. And I, I went to this Kampong Admiralty in the seven and don't feel that um, it is really designing in detail um, spaces for interaction for older persons. This is the main spaces looks like just a giant atrium with um, uh, people milling about like a shopping mall anyway. Um, um, and there seems to be lack of details in terms of creating things to happen. Like, like what Herman Herzberger did in his kindergarten and his projects where these elements such as staircases and, and uh, seating underneath columns, they designed in such a way that uh, people react to it, children react to it. You know, it 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 causes it it it, it gives a sense of possibilities of interaction, and it seems to be lack of that. Um, when we talk about the green school, for example. Uh, fair enough, you know, um, but the the bamboo that has been uh, is is not natural to Indonesia or Bali, and has to be cultivated and grow. The idea of the green school in terms of the learning um, that you could do around a natural environment setting is very appealing and um, is what a school should be doing anyway. But with a concrete building. The school can still do that if it has uh, the policy, the school policy or the programs that allow students to use the natural environment around it. So, but um, yeah, this bamboo design buildings uh, gave a sense of, of the natural environment in the building itself. Um, and there were a lot of other points that we were discussing regarding green architecture. So I'm going to go to the point I'm trying to make earlier. Um, um, biophilic design is, is the, the one that has nearest the, quali the qualitative goal of being a green architecture in the work of Votrongnya uh, in the diagram of stacking green and in the project of the bin house. Um, which we shared with the student of architecture. But the one I'm trying to get to the point is about digital architecture and those using digital architecture, promoting digital architecture, such as Patrick Schumacher. I mentioned earlier about how he doubted that architecture could be a site of radical political activism. Uh, he believed that architecture is a sui generis, discipline, discourse, and practice with his own unique societal responsibility and co competency. As such, it should be sharply demarcated against the other competencies like art, science and engineering and politics. Architects are called upon to develop urban and architectural forms that are congenial to contemporary economic and political life. They are neither legitimized nor competent to argue for a different politics or to disagree with the consensus of global politics. The consensus of global politics is determined by whom, you know. So in the Western world, um, superpowers, um, they create the consensus of global politics, I assume. 
and that uh, his architecture uh, epitomized that, you know. And um, so it's one um, idea of not really looking at the, the poorer countries, not really looking at um, uh, other forms of political uh, discourse. So there was a reaction to this by Leopold Lambert, who argued that, uh, on the contrary, each architecture is actually a site of radical political activism. So every architecture that you see around you is a site of radical political activism. That's what Leopold Lambert says. So um, obviously more for those civic buildings and buildings that were designed by star architects. So he said, most of them are indeed a radical embodiment and a violent implementation of the dominant power. When we talk about um, consensus of global power, then the dominant power says, you know, uh, this is the architecture that is implemented is um, represent that power. So Lambert said his conclusion, therefore, that he agree about the fact that architectural education needs to be questioned and re-questioned, but um, the realism that um, uh, Schumacher said that declared architects as non-legitimized, nor competent to address the political debate is a direct invitation to inhibit any critical attitudes towards the relationships of power and of production that structure our society. So obviously we can't criticize uh, any architecture. I mean, the architecture if the architecture represents the uh, consensus on global politics or consensus on the majority or consensus on the political party, there's order of the day. So we just have to accept that architecture, even though that architecture is, um, later I will talk about what, what Nikos Salingara says about the, the architecture. So, so he's, he said that, um, um, so it's, it's very bad. It's a very negative thing that what uh, Patrick Schumacher is saying um, this idealism or this utopianism that he's trying to uh, um, put forward, you know, it is, um, it, it just shove in your face sort of architecture that you have to accept because the, um, that the money comes from the dominant, uh, the, the power that is wanting to make that architecture and you, that, so you, as an architect, you just have to design for what they want. So um, Nikos Salingaros uh, talk about in a book that was not, he wasn't, he and a few other architects and architectural historians and academics wrote a book that wasn't acceptable to be published by the normal uh, publishers. It was, it was, uh, against so-called star architects. So here is a few quotes from him. On the internet, in books, in newspapers, and in journals, the most offensive contemporary star architects are increasingly described as anti-architects. The paradoxical proliferation of inhuman buildings is explained in the terms of viral methods of infection and monstrous new forms 
or analyze reference to their willful non-adaptability. It goes on to say about um, uh, popular opinion or pe people outside uh, at the architecture fraternity would criticize about this proliferation of the star architect buildings. Uh, so he said as well that people started noticing that some built forms and spaces create anxiety and symptoms of physiological distress in the user, but this connection is denied by the architect and by architectural critics who promote that architect. So he was implying that you're going to get litigated over this, you know, uh, you're going to get sued over this architecture-induced sickness. And he hopes soon because... Um, you can use his book as the evidence for this. So his last quote that I says, as far as the practice and teaching of architecture are concerned, the situation is more complicated. Every day, architects go on as usual, oblivious to the polarization of their discipline. Most of them continue to believe the delusional assumption that ordinary citizens just don't get architecture. The profession is not self-governing, and as a result, the public is not protected from professionals who abuse or damage nature's delicate geometry. Accusations about the inability or unwillingness of the architectural profession to adapt to human sensibility to adapt to human sensibilities and the ecosphere are answered by superficial gloss and a lot of hype. So the debate on contemporary architecture's failure to adapt to biological forms and processes has only just begun and will, will soon get more intense. So this reminds me the biological forms of a biophilic design or to design with nature in mind. Um, and is it we dominate nature or we let nature be also considered as architecture and be part of the architectural design? So. Uh, Nikos Solingaros and his uh, other architects mentioned about, you know, um, this problem with star architects. And this debate has been going on in the last 10 years. And there are the proponents of digital architecture. And you can't run away from digital architecture. Remember Industry 4.0, where we're talking about the Internet of Things, um, the robotics and big data and analysis. We can't, we can't uh, run away from all these things. In fact, uh, the information technology uh, profession um, is is catching up and take have taken over um, architecture, the architecture profession, and even called their own system architecture as well. The word architecture, if you were to Google it, uh, it will be connected to. Uh, information technology and computer science and all these other um, artificial intelligence and all these other um, disciplines, yeah? So, um, uh, but architecture, the arch architects and architecture have to go back to actually do a, a, a reflection on, on whether they need, whether they want to be um, more isolated because this is being more isolated and concerned of, uh, about themselves, about their problems. Um, in different countries, they, have, they probably have different issues, but in Malaysia, for example, the architects in Malaysia, um, 
it is not all architects, but some architects think that they will need to protect themselves and even would like to push for the idea of the Ministry of Architecture, which is kind of, kind of, um, you know, miss miss the point really. Architect architecture has to be part of the built environment or the, the the society in terms of debating about ourselves and collaborating with. Uh, others. So uh, the conclusion of this talk would revolve around this this um, this article that that we talk about how green cities of the future could look like, um, where uh, Robert uh, Bullard, um, a climate justice pioneer and professor of urban planning and environmental pol- policy at Texas Southern University in Houston, stated that. Um, to provide for a healthy environment for everyone, architects and urban planners will need to tackle social challenges with with a interdisciplinary team approach. Architecture can't afford, or architects can't afford to just look at uh, designing within the site. They have to deal with urban context. So further quotation is that today, there are a lot of projects dealing with issues around sustainability climate resilience, walkability, and equity. But if the architects don't build equity and health into the framing for these projects, you will get more gentrification and more exclusivity. You'll get more places that are somehow islands that don't provide any heterogeneity in terms of ethnicity, in terms of income, in terms of kinds of occupations of the people who live there, which he stated in an interview. This is the quote from Dr. Bullard. And, and there was an interesting graph, uh, diagram, sorry, a diagram, which shows the different features of a 20-minute neighborhood. You should be living in a neighborhood where it is. it ha- reflects what you're talking about, a healthy environment. It's also a social environment. And, and not only, we cannot... When we talk about green architecture, we cannot just talk about plants on buildings. We talk about architecture that allows social activities to happen. So, um, uh, sorry, architecture, depending on the typology of, of, of the building, uh, social activities, one thing, architecture that creates for a cycle, a healthy cycle social environment. And we're talking about the aging population here, the most vulnerable uh, members of society. Uh, Looking back into the features of a 20-minute neighborhood, it has to have these factors, local employment opportunities, local shopping centers, local health facilities and services, local schools, all within 20-minute walk, lifelong learning opportunities, local playgrounds and parks, green streets and spaces, community gardens, sports and recreation facilities, safe space streets and spaces, affordable housing, ability to age in place, housing diversity, walkability, safe cycling networks, and local and public transport with well-connected to public transport jobs and services within the region. If you create societies where, like he said, um, uh, you know, not, uh, we create a, 
which create heterogeneity in terms of ethnicity, the income, and kinds of occupation that people live there. And people live there in a way that they feel safe, equal, and it's, there's no exclusivity, no clubs, you know, no gated uh, uh, communities. This is what is a healthy environment should be. It's not just talking about green architecture, putting plants on buildings, yeah? So as a conclusion to this podcast today, talking about um, uh, the criticism about uh, contemporary architecture and how we mentally have to, to tackle these challenges as architects to deal with um, our profession, our role in society, and how um, and being looking beyond the boundaries of the site and being part of society, think about solving urban uh, problems, uh, to, to solve design problems in the urban context. So this is what we should be doing and um, right away from educating our students to um, practicing ourselves. So that's the end of this discussion for today. Thank you for listening in. We hope to talk more about all these topics. And it means such like a, this is such a, um, a general brush stroke of all these things and taking in for bits and pieces, quotes and putting in lecture notes and, and talking about it today. But we need to look into this further and 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 um, it's need to be discussed and debated and we had chances of doing that in in the forum uh, NCKU forum and also in other discourse that's not necessarily by architects but by other people like the social scientists so uh, thank you so much for listening here <laughs>